Chapter 7 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brittany Lynn. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 7 The Reward of Vigilance. The days of adroit watching that followed brought no new incidents and revealed few new facts. But they confirmed Cordelia's first impression that there was a hidden something at Rolling Meadows, and confirmed and enlarged her first impressions of the people. Gladys was fitfully generous and gay, fitfully cross and impatient. Now that Cordelia was seeing her intimately, she noted that Gladys seemed constantly under a nervous strain for which the planning of the coming party seemed hardly an adequate explanation. The more Cordelia saw of Esther Stevens, the more she liked the quiet stepsister. On several occasions, Esther spoke in amusement of herself. She had been engaged before the war and had been jilted for a handsomer woman with a handsome inheritance. An old maid had to do something with her broken heart, so she had brought the fragments to Gladys. She was congenitally lazy, she said, so she had remained with Gladys ever since. To Cordelia, she seemed so competent that Cordelia could hardly believe she was here just for a pensioner's ease. The outstanding fact Cordelia noted about Esther was her love for the adopted Francois. Her love seemed far greater than that of Gladys. Had she been the boy's actual mother, she could not have shown greater concern in every detail that affected him. And Francois plainly loved her better than his other mother, really liked her better than he did Mitchell. Despite his delight in being with the butler, perhaps this delight, so guessed Cordelia, was due merely to the fact that Mitchell was the only man about the house to whom the boy could turn. Cordelia could hardly understand the devotion of Esther to the adopted orphan. Had she been wiser in human nature, she might have surmised that the strongest element in Esther was the maternal instinct, and, denied outlet upon a child of her own, this great maternal feeling had turned its full power on the foundling. Cordelia's freshest experience these days was with the little Francois. From the first, he adopted her as his third mother, and she fell in love with him. This was altogether novel for her. She had never really come in contact with a child, much less played with one. The eight years' difference between her and her sister Lily had been a chasm which had never been bridged. Of course, she had always had a real affection for Lily, but nearly ten years she had been almost constantly away from home. So now it was that Francois was the first child that had vitally entered her life. And what a dear Francois was. As for her own part in this problem, this mystery, Cordelia considered herself as entirely outside it, except in so far as it was a problem which she was to solve. Of course this affair meant, in its secret financial aspect, her remaining up in her splendid world, in the world where she was going to meet Jerry Plimpton as she had been meeting him, also, she felt excitement in the adventure, gratification in the exercise of her faculties for succeeding in anything she tried to do. She was going to solve this problem, somehow, no doubt of that. Also, she wished to extricate Gladys, or whoever else might be involved in the mystery. But beyond these considerations, excited and intrigued though she was, Cordelia did not feel herself personally involved in the affair. She was entirely outside the picture, looking for what the moving figures within the frame might next do, and trying to learn what might be the motives that prompted their actions, 
and what might be their various relationships. It never occurred to Cordelia that this particular mystery might not be a thing apart to itself, that it might really be, for her, no more than a minor element in a far more important mystery. In her unsophisticated sophistication, Cordelia did not realize that Gladys and the household at Rolling Meadows perhaps represented merely the ordinary mystery, if there was a mystery, of relationships that are carefully kept secret, just a few facts which are temporarily concealed, and whose mere discovery may make an end of all that is mysterious. This belief that she was not personally concerned, together with her exuberant confidence in herself, prevented her from suspecting that she and all her destiny might already have been subtly drawn into this affair, and that this story had grown to be primarily her story. And this belief, this confidence, and the blindness with which life shuts off the realities of our future from us all, prevented her from perceiving that this business upon which she was so impersonally engaged was, more than any other series of experiences of her existence, to shape and determine the answer to life's most dramatic theme and question. What kind of person was Cordelia Marlowe going to turn out to be? What was her fate? Despite Cordelia's trying to note every look, every inflection of tone, every act of these people, it was not until she had been at Rolling Meadows a week that she gained her first clue to the realities of the situation. Toward eleven o'clock one night, she caught a swift questioning look, which Gladys gave Esther, and saw Esther's almost imperceptible nod. Instantly, Cordelia's every sense was on the alert. She pretended a yawn, said she was going to get a book from the library with which to read herself to sleep. With the book, she ascended the main stairway with the tired manner of one to whom a few pages will be an infallible sleeping potion. Inside her room, she dropped the book, slipped outside again, locked her door, and carefully made her way down the hall toward a little-used stairway in the western wing. Fortune favored her, for she gained the porch unobserved. Standing in a corner of the porch in the black shadow of thick wisteria, not even feeling the chill that had come with night, Cordelia waited in rigid expectancy, peering in every direction into the gloom-flooded lawn. She had an insistent, pounding sense that something was about to happen, something about to be revealed to her, and she felt a conviction that the something, be it big or small, was not going to transpire in the illuminated walls of the big house. Minutes throbbed by. A half hour? An hour? Then, from the shadows of the house there emerged a vague figure and hurried away to the right, avoiding the path and keeping to the silent lawn. It was a woman's figure, no doubt of it. Gladys, its blurred outlines swiftly faded into the night. Cordelia still waited. More minutes passed. Then, hurrying from the house through the gloom of the lawn, Cordelia saw another vague figure. This was also a woman, and indubitably, Esther Stevens. She dissolved into the night at about the same point Gladys had entered the blackness. Undoubtedly, they were headed for the same spot, and according to agreement... But what was there that these two had to say to each other that they could not say as safely in the whispered privacy of one of their rooms? The obvious answer was that they were to meet a third person, or possibly a fourth. With mounting tensity, Cordelia waited for another shadowy figure to cross the lawn. Minutes passed, but no figure traversed the darkness. 
and then it came to her that the other person, or persons, might have been waiting over there in the unknown blackness before she had come out upon the veranda. She delayed no longer, but went swiftly down the steps and across the lawn in the direction taken by the other two. As she hurried, she wondered where might be the rendezvous. Almost any spot in the groping blackness of the pine wood, to find them there, was well-nigh hopeless. And then Cordelia realized the direction she was taking, and suddenly remembered something. Near the limit of the lawn, and sitting almost in the edge of the pine woods, there stood a playhouse built for Gladys when she was ten years old, and used by her for two or three years, when in the occasional mood for playing at keeping house. It was really as large as many a comfortable summer cottage, and had cost the indulgent mother of Gladys above fifteen thousand dollars. When Gladys had outgrown the toy, its chambers had been converted into bedrooms for the use of guests when the big house's weekend hospitality was overflowing. In recent years there had been no occasion for such use, but it had been kept in order. Cordelia recognized, since she was headed straight for it, that the playhouse was the logical place of meeting. She moved carefully around to its farther side, for she remembered that the windows of the living room faced toward a little clearing in the pines. There were no lights. She crept up toward the heart of a great syringa bush, which grew against the house. Cautious as she was, she rustled the leaves slightly, and her over-acute ears magnified that shuffling of leaves to the clatter of cymbals. Her heart grew suddenly still. She was sure she had been heard, but there came no sign from the house. More cautiously, she crept further in and tried to make herself a part of the syringa bush's arching branches. Then a leaping thrill went through her like a current of electricity. She had guessed right, and luck was still with her. A window was open, and through it came lowered voices. In her excitement, she did not catch the first words, but the voice was Gladys's, and it was angry, loud. The first words she really heard were in a man's voice, a cool, steady voice. Soft pedal your talk a bit, Gladys, said the voice. You're not using the best sense in the world crying out like this, and the way you did the other night, the other night when you got Miss Marlowe out of bed. I don't mind it so much, but it's not particularly safe for you. Cordelia almost gasped aloud as she recognized this quiet voice. It had the quality of authority, of assured mastery over those it addressed. It was the voice of Mitchell, the self-effacing, ever-present, soft-toned Mitchell, that perfect butler. "'You don't expect me to take any such talk from you calmly,' exclaimed Gladys in a lower tone. "'You must acquire better control of your nerves, my dear,' responded Mitchell. Though assured, his voice had an easy, pleasant, affable quality. I must say that you have lost a lot in the matter of nerves in the last five years, and I must say that you're making things rather absurd when your nerves make it necessary to arrange to slip off to a place like this when a private talk is necessary. Esther here has far better control. You should try to copy it, my dear. Will you please stop my dearing me? cried Gladys in exasperation. I'm tired of it. Anything to please you, Gladys though I can't give any bond for my tongue. It's got a frightful memory. And another thing, the exasperated Gladys went on, I want you, and so does Esther, to stop making up to Francois. Do you, Esther? Mitchell inquired. 
If Esther made any reply, it did not come to Cordelia's ears. Anyhow, what is it behind your always trying to make Francois so fond of you? Gladys demanded. I like the boy, and I like to make him happy, as I told you. Isn't that reason enough? Not reason enough for you. Well, of course, there might be other considerations prompting my kindness. His tone was meditative, still pleasant. Cordelia could guess how provoking that pleasant quality was to Gladys. Who knows? I may be thinking of the desirability of someday kidnapping Francois. I wouldn't put it beyond you to try. And if I should try, it would make the business very much easier and less dangerous, now wouldn't it, my dear? Beg pardon, Gladys. I forgot I wasn't to call you, my dear. Much less dangerous, if Francois came along of his own accord because he liked me so much. A neat plan. I rather fancy that plan. Neither of the two made response to this. Or, who knows, perhaps I am thinking of something else. For example, that I am getting ready to claim him as my own son. You wouldn't dare, burst Gladys in a choked voice. Mitchell, you're not in earnest about any such claim, breathed Esther. Cordelia could not tell whether he was in earnest or merely taking his pleasure in exercising his power over these two. He responded to neither of them, and went on in his pleasant, meditative tones. That last idea was decidedly good. It would make a most convincing and affecting newspaper story. Father enters domestic service in search of son lost in war chaos of France. Relationship proved by the instinctive affection between the two. A slightly different version of the ancient Solomon and two mothers stunt. Yes, indeed, most affecting and convincing situation. On the whole, I believe I like this plan much better than any I have thought of. It's safer, and there may be much more in it. Yes, when I get good and ready, I think I'll claim my son. You'll never get him away from me, said Esther. Try that and I'll fight you, exclaimed Gladys. Fight me, oh will you, Gladys, my dear? Mitchell said softly. Now will you? I do wish you'd try that course. It would be most interesting to match evidence with you in court, my dear. Most interesting. Neither of the women spoke. Yes said Mitchell in his soft, meditative tone. I think I like this plan best. I'll claim Francois as my son. There was silence for a moment more. Cordelia was sure that, in her tense eagerness, she had rustled the syringa bush. But if so, there was no immediate sign that she had been heard within. Esther was the next to speak. Suppose we change the subject and get to the matter Gladys wanted to talk about. Just as pleases the two of you, said Mitchell. But before getting on to that, Gladys, how about the money you were to give me? You've had altogether too much out of me as it is. You'd have given me ever so much more if I'd only asked for it, my dear, returned the pleasant voice of Mitchell. Oh, ever and ever so much more, and you know it. See here, you listen to what Gladys began hotly but was interrupted by the equitable voice of her butler. My dear, if I've got to listen to much more, I believe I'll first close the window. It's getting chilly and there's a draft, and the draft must be directly upon Esther's back. The window came down with a soft thud. 
and Cordelia heard no more. She wondered what they were saying within, but she had already heard enough to astound her. The subservient Mitchell, on a basis of equality with Gladys and Esther, perhaps superiority over them. What could it mean? What was the true relationship among the three? She recognized that her own immediate problem was to get back to the house unobserved, but the trio within might finish any moment and start for the house. The safe course for her, if she would avoid all danger of discovery, was to remain where she was until the three had departed. So she stood in the enfolding arms of the syringa bush, palpitantly wondering, fearing to breathe fully, waiting until the way was clear. End of chapter 7